Welcome to the end of Mad Men on the Idle Thumbs Podcast Network. This is for the final episode of the series, Person to Person. I'm Sean Vanneman. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. Uh, you guys would never believe that this episode was written and directed by Matt Weiner. Hmm. You didn't hand this one off? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, they brought back Paul Feig for this week. No, it's, um, yeah. So this is, uh, this is the end of the end of Mad Men. Yeah. Wow, guys. Never, I never thought we'd get here. <laughs> it's been a long seven weeks. <laughs> do you guys do you guys want to guess what this episode was about? I, I accidentally got a glimpse of the mm. description, so I'm not playing this week. Oh, it's all man. Sean. Sean, it's on oh. you. You're not I'll tell you there's this. a there's a twist. You're not gonna guess it. Yeah. Joan finds new challenges. Mm-hmm. Don takes a trip. Yeah. <laughs> Roger eats lobster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good guess. You couldn't have been more wrong, though, because what happened in this episode was the stories of Don Draper, his family, and his co-workers at Sterling Cooper and Partners conclude. That's great. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, what else are you going to say? End. Yep. So, uh, yeah. on that note, what did you guys... Uh, uh, for a fitting end to incoherent Mad Men uh, episode summaries, what did you guys think of this end of Mad Men itself? It was extraordinary. Yeah. I watched it twice back to back. Nice. It was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I am probably more forgiving than the average person in terms of like, or the average like critical show watcher in terms of what works and doesn't work. And like, oh, I can't believe they did that or whatever, whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I can't imagine how hard getting this right is. I agree. And then the fact that it is, by and large, perfect, I think, as an end, um, is make, forgives the stuff like like Stan and Peggy is like what you want to see, and it's great, but it's also a little like schmaltzy. Yeah, that, that was a little like, that, but whatever, I was like on that, whatever. But it's totally good. It's like yeah. I needed something like sure. that. Like thank you. <laughs> like I, I was almost gracious, even though it was like it. It, it yeah. felt like the, as far as being an ending goes, Mad Men was obviously incredible. Like this episode was really self aware that it was the last episode, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like I like a lot done. of the different arcs ended in Some sort of, of different. Ended, they ended in different ways that you could end something on Mad Men. I mean, like we sort of said. In the past, that basically every episode almost of the last like four or five at least, and even like maybe every episode of like the back half of Mad Men could have just been the end of Mad Men probably, and it mm -hmm. would have been okay. Yeah. But this episode, I felt like Dawn's story versus Jones versus Peggy and Stan versus Roger and Betty, they all like almost not literally end the way that, like different genres end, but they all end. They There's not like a consistent way that all of these things are tied off in a way that I liked. Like it, right. me it meant that. That breadth meant that I wasn't really bothered well, by Peggy and Stan being like the schmaltzy one. Mm -hmm. There was a there was one of the things that um, that I realized as I was watching the episode is that in my brain I knew obviously from the first second the episode started as did everyone that it was the last one and it was going to end and when the episode ended the show would ended the show would be over forever and so I had this low level awareness in my brain the entire time that like any scene could be the last scene so I was constantly kind of almost on the edge of my seat to, to use a cliched phrase right. um, thinking like, okay, is this the end scene or is this leading up to the end scene? Because in a show like Mad Men, you never know because the, because a, a story can end in just a totally abrupt, unceremonious way as is Harry Crane's final scene, or it can end in the most 
sort of soaring mountainous like peak as in, you know, Peggy and Stan declaring their love in the, in the schmaltziest way possible. And so you need that, but you never know with this show. And so Sean, you know, you were saying you're more forgiving, um, than a lot of people. And I, I find the same with this show. I, I think in general, I'm, I'm a relatively critical person of media. Not, not, I don't, I hope not in a sour way, but you know, I mean, I, I like to think about choices, creative choices and so on. But, um, but with certain, certain things, especially TV shows, since they go on so long, it, they can kind of buy a lot of credibility up front from me if they demonstrate their willingness to deviate from norms and not always be pandering and sort of take risky choices. It buys me a lot of leeway in terms of then not necessarily being so critical, like right. when they take a choice, when they take a chance that isn't like quite as right. 100%, you know, up my alley, like for example, the Stan and Peggy thing that wouldn't have been like my like 100% ideal, but also whatever, like the show has earned so much right. I think it totally you know, works. Like, goodwill yeah. for me in terms of its willingness to just go almost anywhere right. with its characters in a, in an, in a believable and earned way. Well, I think it's sort of like lazy criticism to look at like the Stan and Peggy finale and go like, blah, blah, that's just like straight. That's just like a very like rom com or whatever. And I think it's just, just because something like a trope or like a storytelling device or a scene looks like it could have been lifted from something that is like lower brow or like less, I don't know, like critically acclaimed mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it is inherently yeah. bad. And to be clear, you know I, mean? I, I, I just, mean... no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about like, I read a lot of criticism about it mm -hmm. um, over the past couple of days. And I thought it was really lazy to sort of criticize that storyline wrapping up in the it, way that it oh, did. Sure. I think... Because it's just like, well, this looks like this. When, I mean, well, yeah. like, this. When, I mean when that man looks like when some you crazy see, anatomy. When you see Peggy yeah. and Steve, when you see Stan, Peggy and Steve, when you see that Peggy and, why can't it be more like Peggy? Whatever happened to Peggy and Steve? Um, when you when that Peggy and Stan scene is playing, I think everyone who's watching it who has any amount of self awareness is going like, oh, "What are they doing? They're doing this." But then, like after the dust settles on it, and you sort of backtrace those two characters' relationship, especially over the back half mm -hmm. of the season, but even just who they are as people, the amount of resistance that they've put up to ever experiencing a moment like that in their lives, it, like it felt really nice, actually, well, yeah. particularly with Peggy. Yeah, yeah. particularly yeah. with Peggy. But I mean, the, the only reason I I was like somewhat reserved about it is because their relationship grew into such an amazing like friendship, friendship mm -hmm. that to me it was almost a shame to kind of like spoil that, so to speak, mm. because they they had they they built up such this great like positively antagonistic working relationship mm -hmm. where they respect each other clearly a lot, but like always have to kind of every single time they have to push through the, the kind of like ways their personalities are just a few degrees off. And, you know, Stan explicitly calls that out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a little bit harder for me to swallow the, the um, sort of just romantic side of it, but whatever. I mean, it's not, a, I'm not, I think the, the, the real, the reality of that is, it is Mad Men, and you know that the next scene that Peggy and Stan were to have, were they to have one, would not be a romantic scene. Right. Yeah, it's true. And it's yeah, sort of like them true. just committing to the honesty of what's going on in their lives mm -hmm. yeah. and the way that they're interacting mm -hmm. is very different than, like, that That point is still, like, exists on the curve of their lives, even yeah. though it's just an amplifier it's, to it's it. It's totally true. Yeah. And I, I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. it's No, you're, you're, you guys are right for sure. Um, 
uh, in that in that sense. Um, I I reserve my right to be like slightly mixed on it. Oh but yeah, like but, uh, but I'm I, not like I'm not but all I, in on it. But I yeah, but I'm totally won over by in the moment by um, Elizabeth Moss, her just like incredulous, increasing barrage of like what. What did you say? Man. What? Just, like, the number of times the number yeah. of times she kept adding another what yeah. was Oh man, amazing. Peggy's end of that phone call was just like what a good way to go out. There yeah. were a lot of phone calls in this episode. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I actually went and like kind of read up on the making of this episode a little bit um in terms of those phone calls. Uh and in an interview in the New York Times, John Hamm actually points out that uh Ted Shaw earlier in the season kind of <clears throat> like alludes to all the phone calls that don makes he says to him in like a pitch meeting or something there's three men in every or three women in every man's life and i think it's like whatever his mother is blah, blah 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 but don makes three phone calls to three women in this episode mm. yeah and um it was interesting i mean this is sort of like this doesn't actually have anything to do with the text but i just thought it was fascinating so i'll pass it along uh, the the phone calls that he had with um his daughter right. and Betty were on set, um mm-hmm. so they were actually like separated by a wall and could hear each other oh, on okay. a phone. Yeah, and then when he's at Esalon, like the retreat that right. is the background of his entire story in this episode, um, Elizabeth Moss was like not there. <laughs> like they were actually like yeah. separated by a three hour times like right. time zones. Uh-huh. Um, and so they tried it just on a phone mm-hmm. and they got a bunch of different emotional, they did it a bunch of times right. and finally they're like, oh, well screw it. So like they just called Elizabeth Moss and he's actually on the phone with her in the scene that you see in the show. Oh, cool. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I thought these phone call scenes, like if somebody said there's going to be this much phone conversation in any episode of anything, I'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> but they were so sensationally great. Like the phone call between Betty and Don Oh, that me. was incredible. That was, that was maybe I was one like, of the highlights I was, of the episode. I was just, just eviscerated on the on the ground. My guts were hanging from the chandelier. Mm-hmm. It was the yeah. worst. That was by far the ultimate expression. Because this show is really I think this some of the some of this show's strongest work and one of the reasons that, you know, I've as I've said in the past, like I'm a big uh Betty like champion, I suppose, is that you know, for whatever that means in a show like this, that isn't really team uh, Betty over here. Right. Right. Chris like not a fan service (laughs) show, but you know what I mean? Like, because she is a character that has so many vocal detractors in the world. Um, I feel like it's whatever, but, um, Jake is on team Kinsey, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, I think that some of the shows, he was a Cosgrove best (laughs) moments in, in terms of speaking to her and into speaking to like one of the most important dynamics on the show shows how, Don and Betty connect post divorce. Like right. the way that they are with each other after they're divorced and, and this sort of reaches like it's apotheosis in this, in that scene, you know, that telephone scene, um, I think says so much about the impossible conflicts of kind of adulthood and, um, like the uh, modernity and, uh, relationships and sense of self and like all of these things that as, as, it, as an adult in the weird changing 20th century, you know, you're expected to just completely internalize, but like those um, and keep within yourself. And those scenes really show why this stuff is so fucking hard. Like the, their scenes with each other show why it is so, so difficult to like keep all the things you're supposed to be 
both unto yourself and with another person, like on an even keel. And, um, and why so many things go wrong, like just with people and with lives and, and just with everything. And, and, um, the, their messiness and also like the genuine affection that they clearly still have for one another, despite the impossibility of it all is, is I think so well-written and so, so strong and reminds me a lot of like things in, in my own family. And like, I is, I, I just think like an absolute triumph. Um, and that scene was the perfect ending for, for all that stuff. When she says to him, and I'm not going to try to quote it, but essentially like, I want things to stay normal and you not being here is normal. Yeah. That was brutal. I made a noise. <laughs> like I was laying on the couch watching it and he's, she says that in right on the cut back to him before I've even seen, uh, Don's face. I just went, Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that. It was just like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I've ever reacted like that to a TV show or to a line in a TV show ever. Like, I'll ne- never like it was so amazing. Yep. It was like Basically, I felt invigorated afterwards. Like all these emotions were just like soaring through my body. And I was like, oh, my God, that what a time was, to just be alive. A, was just a cavalcade of those from Betty, though. Like yeah. basically every like that was the, the crux of it. But basically just everything that she says to Don in that scene is just like it was like January Jones in that scene. I was thinking about it just as an actress, how she played every line yeah. was just so um, emotionally intelligent that I can't really get my head around it. Like yep. she's capable of being mean to him in that conversation, but not too mean because yeah. she's sick and she's tired. Well, she's not trying she's to be it. cruel though. She's when she being, says like, she's being when was unvarnished. The last time you saw them, that sort yeah. of thing. It's like, right. that's a little dig. It's a little dig. But you know what but I mean? She's, she but she plays it so perfectly. But she's doing it because she's trying. I mean, I think anyway. She's trying to get Donna just to see what's going on, yes, right? She's yeah. tr- she doesn't have, like, she, she she's not trying to pick a fight. no interest in, right. like, prolonging this or, like, like right. helping, like, bolstering his feelings or anything. Well, it's she's like, trying to say, she says, like, I appreciate the- your intentions, but I'm not going to waste what time I have exactly. left having this conversation right. with you. Right. Yes, yes. It was funny to see her take a step down. Like, you've heard her say that to him before. Right. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And like that was something that she took off the shelf of old and then seeing her like say stuff that yeah, essentially it, is new. It felt at the same like she yeah. meant that in a different way. She, she didn't. I know. She wasn't saying, saying. Yeah. She's not saying. Yeah, it, she I'm down. literally saying actually, yeah. that she said a sentence that she said many, many times to Don or some version of, but said it in such a new way because yeah. the circumstances of her character's life were right. completely new. Mm-hmm. And oh, it was just so good. I was yeah. invigorated. Like it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we've we sort of started out this episode and immediately just like started picking stuff off the shelf at random. Um, I guess to extend your shelf metaphor, but I think we should before we before we just keep doing all that, shelves. For the rest, for the rest We're shelving episode, this podcast after let's, this episode. Um, let's yeah, shelve true. this conversation. Let's not. Let's uh, talk about the actual ending of the episode because I think okay. that's what everyone immediately started talking about after the episode came out. Um, and I think we should weigh in. So I actually I want to know what you guys. Maybe to you this will be self-evident. I don't know. How did you literally interpret the last scene? Like literally, literally plot-wise, how did, what did you take that to mean? You mean Don smiling and then the cut to the yes. Coca-Cola ad? Yes. I I actually didn't. You I didn't don't what? know. Like, oh, I did. I, I mean – well, You what? had to interpret it some way. Within, okay. I mean <laughs> like sleep and I woke up a day later. <laughs> my, 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 my order of operations was probably similar to a lot of people, which was Don smiling and me saying – fuck you, you're going to cut to black on that. Oh, man, that Coke ad. Yeah. Yes. But, like, <laughs> I, I, at first it was just like, oh, that's an amazing thematic connection. Mm-hmm. Good. Like, I didn't really think about any plot implications. And then I was like, oh, does that mean 
that my brain then immediately said, oh, does that mean, is that, are we supposed to then think, you know, what you think, that Don just smiled because he got the idea for that ad, went right. back to McCann, picked up Coke, and then Mad Men is explicitly saying Don Draper created right. this ad. And then my next thought was, I don't actually care what read that is. If this is a thematic connection and saying, it doesn't matter if Don Draper explicitly created this ad, America created this ad, the ad agency created mm-hmm. this ad, we mm-hmm. live in a world where that ad exists, who right. cares? Right. I And that, so literally, I ended up not caring at the end because I said, whether or not this is like a plot resolve and we're supposed to then trickle it back and like right. notice the girl who had the same braided hair mm-hmm. and the same mm-hmm. shirt and like maybe right. Don was inspired or just the sort of thing that Mad Men is about is also about mm-hmm. the country that mm-hmm. and the culture that created this ad that then basically changed advertising and changed how we relate to brands and created gross bunch of modern problems and whatever else. Like I, I, I ended up existing in a place where I don't know personally and mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually care either way. Right. But I mean, it all sort of swirled around in my brain at the mm-hmm. end of the episode. Yeah. But I agree with you in that it doesn't really matter to me if Don explicitly created the Buy a World of Coke ad. Right. But I do think, like, in terms of, like, things that I, like, concretely took from that scene plot-wise, because I agree everything you said sort of thematically, i 100% on board with, I believe Don goes back to advertising. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something I absolutely, like, I just believed that. Uh-huh. Like, that was pretty explicit to me. What, um, what year is Mad Men in? Sorry, really quick. This right 71? now, I think it was 1970. 70. Okay. Like that, that, that commercial came out in 71. The commercial came out in February of 71, and this episode ended around oh, Halloween of, I yeah. guess, 1970. So yeah. the time the timeline makes sense. But yeah. sorry, I was just, I couldn't. Um, so yeah, I believe that he goes back to advertising. I believe that Don has a new phase of his life. Not in sort, not that in, in necessarily it's better or he's better or that he's redeemed. But I do think when he, like, I think he gets up out of the chair and hugs that stranger in the scene I think, before. Yeah, I think at the least he learns how to live in that skin better. I think yeah, that we're I think supposed he's to okay. take that from it. Yeah, I think I think he's he understands that he's an ad man and that's okay. It's yep. not, it doesn't mean all the things that it meant before he went on his journey. I think his conversation. Like, I think of, he's in a better place. His conversation sure. with Peggy was probably one of the most honest moments that you could map his trajectory from. When he ends it, he's like, "I'll talk to you soon." And Peggy is like. He's never coming back. But like Don's She was at first. I think she be- yeah. Yeah, but when Don yeah. says I'll talk to you soon, it's like, okay, that mean like he's he's not closed that door 100% if even mm-hmm. at that point well, he's in the middle of the a episode. hurricane at that moment emotionally, yeah. you know. So the the reason I asked you guys what you made, made of that literally is because the prevailing opinion by far like by far by far by far among sort of TV commentators and writers and things like that is is 100% absolutely that Don went back to McCann and definitely personally created that ad. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I, I just find that much less satisfying personally. I find yeah, it a much less interesting <clears throat> read. And so it was interesting to me that it seems to be almost universally accepted at this point as the, the, the sort of literal interpretation where I, I do find it much more interesting as just a juxtaposition, I guess, Jake, to what you were saying of the kind of, Don kind of ostensibly finding some kind of enlightenment or acceptance or sort of way to live in the world put up against this um, manufactured version of global harmony and uh, peace and and love that really harkens back to whatever episode in the first season when Don tells Rachel Mencken, you know, love is what guys like me used to sell you, whatever it is. That's that's all totally true. But I think you also – can't take Don's smile at face value at the end no. when it's juxtaposed no, 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 with that no, no. coke ad. Like it, he not. also right. got an idea no, no. right there. Like, okay. you I'm know. not saying I'm not saying that 
I'm not saying that my my read requires Don to be a a kind of unironically fully reformed right. like guru. I'm just saying that I I I don't like the tidiness of right. I think like, I think saying he made this exact thing. I think it doesn't matter if Don Draper individual made this, especially mm-hmm. because that's a real ad that actually like a person who's alive today right. in the real world will actually made. that 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 as a counter argument isn't allowed though because it's Don Draper ca- Don Draper creates it's toast they're it's toasted a, it's, for it's for not Lucky a, Strike which is a, a real you it's know. not a counter argument about the plot it's just me reacting I know emotionally to to yeah, the, yeah. to to the scene well I mean. <clears throat> I think what's interesting is that, I mean, I'm kind of in this zone where like maybe probably, but I don't really, I haven't spent a lot of like mental calories caring about whether mm-hmm. he made, he explicitly made that ad or not. And like, I don't feel as strongly as you do in terms of like, Oh man, like if you were trapped in an elevator for like 10 hours with Matt Weiner and he was like, you know, Don creates that ad for sure. And you'd be like, Oh really? <laughs> like, I'd be like, Oh yeah, well, fine. Whatever. Um, I mean, I wouldn't get in an argument with him about I it. Did you guys read like the whole I like, would, history <laughs> of that ad? Did you guys go read the like making of that? No, ad I read history? like a sentence about it. Yeah, I read the Wikipedia page for the for the song. Oh, I went to the Coke his like historic like archive. Man, you went page. to the source. We we to no, the they have like a whole like history page. of Coke. We have to okay like, website. It's you really said, you talk about that, and then um, Dana and I snapped a screen grab of the Wikipedia page for the song an hour after Mad Men aired, when it was just some guy's opinion of exactly what it was, <laughs> but written in the Mad Men or written in the uh, Wikipedia like fact voice. So t- talk about the history of the song for half a second, but I, I do feel like I have to read this because it's outrageous. So that somebody just went and went like, well, like, it's, it's my time to shine. I'm going to Wikipedia. Yeah. Like, Go for it, Sean. Um, so the the song was created by McCann Erickson, um, and they – it was a couple – it was a McCann creative executive whose name is like – last name is like Barker. It was Bob Backer. Backer, yeah. And Bob Backer and another guy from McCann were flying to London – to record a song with a like relatively like popular band at the time called like new something. Um, I'm really good with all the nouns of my story, but they get, uh, they they can't land in London because of weather. So they get like two days over in Shannon, Ireland and they were in the airport and the first night they were there. They, um, they, everybody was like mad because they couldn't get to London and all the passengers were in an uproar. So everybody like went to their, you know, stayed the night. And then the next day they had sort of like snacks and Cokes for everybody. Mm-hmm. And like people were sitting around ta- like building friendships, drinking Cokes. And Bob Backer is like, man, I just wish I could just buy the whole world a Coke. And like, that's actually in the airport right there where the story came to be. Yeah. And then they went to London, sat down with this recording, like in a re- recording studio. And this band had like a, like a, like, I don't know, a Cat Stevens like like yeah, song. The that song they were existed on. and then they injected the lyrics. Right. And then they injected the coke stuff into that song and totally changed it and then made a mega hit. And I guess that song, like radio stations were um <clears throat> like would get requests to play the ad instead of like yeah. other songs. Coke got something like a hundred thousand personal letters about the that song. That ad is like is they it, ended up printing a record yeah. about that song. That song is like bleakly insidious too, with how it changed how advertising and brands and things represent to people. Right. I think. It was like, like the first sort of like yeah. commodity ad, yeah. basically. Well, because and the thing and if you look at the um the pop landscape of the era, which you know, you could say this about today as well, but it, it means something different, you know, Jake, as you point out, given that fulcrum point. Like there, there were plenty of songs in that era that made use of brands in non 
endorsed like non-product placement ways. If you look at like Simon and Garfunkel, Kodachrome, or like the you know GTO, what was like the the Beach Boys, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Like th- that brands came up in pop songs, yeah, like to like pluck something out of the public right. consciousness. But this is like there there this is much more insidious of of the corporation itself like buying and selling the thing, placing it yeah. on radio as a you know, it lands in this weird, like, ad- advertorial space, but like, of just like paid promotional content. But at the same time, also thinking about watching like TV nightly news in the early 70s and how disastrously bleak that had to be, and then seeing I Want to Buy the World a Coke come on as the break from that. Right. Just crazy. Yeah. Oh, but, oh let me finish my thing. Okay. This is, ties back to Mad Men a little bit. Um, in that I went and watched interview an interview with Bob Backer about the creation of this ad mm-hmm. and the first question is like what is it like to be the creator of the bio world of coke oh, ad man. and bob Packer just goes like i didn't create it like i was in the room there was a bunch of us it was a group effort there was another song at first like the desire to point out like one creator is sort of like tidy and not <laughs> right. correct like yeah, i don't yeah. think i deserve all the credit <laughs> it's an and like next question like <laughs> it was a life-changing ad let's talk and like it just blew over his question right. <laughs> you know, i mean his answer you know which i think ties into sort of like some of the things you were saying about the ambiguity of the creation of this ad inside of the episode a little bit yeah that's know? totally fair um and that's actually what Matt Weiner also says i i listened to a couple interviews with him recently and like Me too, yeah. he's clearly obviously the seen as the principal authorial voice of the show. And I think, is, you know, yeah. probably rightly so the if anyone's going to be like, yeah, right. He, he, you know, yeah, it, it's his sensibility that sort of set the tone and guides the thing. But, you know, he still makes a point to say in interviews, like it's not me. It's like all these people who right. are in the room and even beyond the writer's room. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. um, he goes out of his way to point that out. I noticed, which is nice. Um, yeah. On fresh air, he made a point of saying like, it's, it's convenient for AMC and the network and stuff to use me as a marketing right, device. Right. But like, it's a big group of people right. who make this episode, but also yeah. on his show, but his show does. In fact, I think, um, when it comes to Don Draper in particular, like it does, the show does position Don Draper as, a singular creative voice who is indispensable and sort of um, m- on more, you know, on numerous occasions, like is essentially struck with divine inspiration in a way that like fuel, e- even though other people contribute, other copywriters contribute, people write tags that he churns through. Like he is definitely presented. There was, as there was a delicious, there was creation. a delicious addressing of that in this episode though. When Don is like flop sweaty, John Hamm talking to Peggy and he, and she starts She's like, Don, where have you been? His immediate thing is like, did everything fall apart without me? Right. Peggy's just like, no, uh, <laughs> no, no what? Uh, yeah. what? Like- and, and this season is kind of about that, too. You know, Don goes to McCann and realizes there's like a dozen other Dons, essentially. You know, like he's in the meeting with Miller or what was it Miller, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, like he's one of a dozen creative, half a dozen creative directors and they're all just kind of there and they're essentially taking marching orders from the Miller guy. And like yep. Don Draper is a valuable asset there, but they have a lot of valuable assets. Yep. I need to tell you that um, you guys, oh, I'm sorry. What yeah. Wikipedia yes. declares, please, please do. this has since been edited to be way more ambiguous and quotes some interviews John Hamm did to bolster this and stuff. But just at the time that that episode aired, here was the definitive sort of world's encyclopedia uh, explanation of the end of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Just before the commercial segment played, the series protagonist, Don Draper, was shown meditating, finally at peace with a smile on his face, on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean and facing the rising sun. 
The broadcast of the famous commercial was used to tell the audience that Draper had returned to McCann Erickson, that his creative ability had returned, that he was respons- <laughs> that he was responsible for producing the Hilltop ad campaign inspired by his experience in the California retreat, and that he had finally reconciled his alienation and personal demons and found creative fulfillment in his professional advertising career. End of article. <laughs> well, I mean... Wait, this is the article about, about the, the song. Uh, yes. <laughs> Then after that, it talks about how there was uh, a single release and then the references and links to think quotes. About, that was an unsighted about, paragraph as well. <laughs> think about how incredibly pleased somebody was when they pressed the like, commit chain. I know. Button. Yeah. I, I don't know how long that version of that article was up. It can't have been long, long but we, reaches over, grabs a 64-ounce big gulp of Coke and just... <laughs> Nods, puts it back. I love yeah. that. Basically, right when that this episode finished airing on the on the West Coast, anyone who looked up that song at Wikipedia found that because I'm sure that article was a, like spiked on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. People yeah. were just like, yeah. "Oh, I guess it means that he found well, peace and exercised his honey, demons." It's all explained right here. <laughs> Coke immediately started like blasting out the social media, like you know, every, all the fucking yeah. Like McCann, oh you guys God. noticed McCann in the last few weeks has been like tweeting all kinds of shit. Oh really? Yeah, McCann's yeah. been like they tweet like a, they, they tweeted they, a picture of Darth Vader and saying like "Welcome to the Dark Side." Yeah. Hashtag Madmen from the McCann yeah, Twitter account. <laughs> we live in. They're <laughs> leaning into that hard. Speaking oh. of our weird world with brands. McCann Erickson, real ad agency depicted in fictional show, tweets villainous character from unrelated fictional universe. Like, like it's it's the whole thing is insane. It's I can't think of a place I would want to be less than a conference room at the Coca Cola Corporation yesterday morning. After that episode came out. What, you out. mean as they're deciding how to capitalize on this? Yeah. yeah Can yeah. you imagine just a grosser place to be? What if, guys, guys. Does no, McCann do still represent with, Coke? I, imagine Mad Men ending and there's a guy in a, in a Coke office saying, get McCann on the phone. What a strange world. That, I, I don't know. That, yeah. I bet McCann still has do some they Coke accounts. Account, they yeah. must still rep something. I yeah. bet they do it all. They have Fanta. Like yeah, they probably do. Yeah, they probably point. do. Yeah. So what's next? Uh, we talked – we talked about the end of the show, and, and yeah, we talked about the end of the end of Mad Men, and that, that's the thing that everyone talks about. But the moment in this episode that I, I've I read some stuff about, but that that seems like it didn't get talked about as much was just Don hearing that guy's story and giving him that big old oh, hug, yeah. oh, that's and that's great. like the the moment of this episode for me. I thought mm-hmm. personally, that's fantastic, um, because it it seems like Don connects with like you know there's that the guy who tells a story about how he's basically invisible about how his, his family doesn't recognize him and maybe maybe they do love him but it doesn't really matter for much or whatever well, else it's not even that it was that i don't think it said it doesn't matter for much it's that he was he is so far gone and he was so like deep within himself right that he there were in fact efforts to to bring him back in and he wasn't even capable but it's of not gonna it, those, those efforts can't even reach far enough mm-hmm. to, to touch for him, him to be point. aware of right right exactly, yeah. and I I loved Don connecting with this guy who, as far as, like, this guy's ability to have social agency and stuff, it's completely the opposite of Don. Like, he's just sort mm-hmm. of a schlubby, mm-hmm. bald dude who can't, you know, who who feels he just... can't skate on the things Don can. Right, but at the same time, Don feels, I think, invisible and non-existent in the same ways as that guy, and he, like... Well, this episode really, like, really drives home how much Don has completely alienated the the people who should be the closest to him you know i mean like we we get a sense at the end that he's he's gonna sort of swing back from that certainly but like leading up to that he he is kind of at the bleakest point he's ever been i mean right like, but that he's he's so removed 
I don't know if Don has actually ever been truly close to a person on this show for any extended period of time, though. I mean, I guess I guess he has on and off, but like that Don making that realization with that guy mm-hmm. didn't feel like it was just a response to the immediate recent. I didn't, I didn't mean that. I just okay. mean that it, that was presented at the lowest point. Sure. Yeah. Okay. What I loved. So what I loved about that scene specifically is that Don has been like face to face with people who are struggling or people who are in pain or like just people's emotional stories uh, a lot over the course of seven seasons. And um, you see him, he's very, I mean, maybe John Hamm's an actor, but we'll say, say Don Draper is very good at like, feeling someone else's emotions like right. seeing what they're yeah, going you pointed through that out in at a really episode. deep level he's an then, empathetic person yeah but yeah. his his like sort of like like the steps that he takes in his brain is to take all of that on feel it all make it about himself like feel all those things in himself as if they are repack- yes him. repackage it in a way that is applicable to him or at least what he thinks is applicable exactly to him. right yeah and either like stew on that and let it feed his dark side or package it up and make it something useful or something that is actually maybe not useful, but seems useful in the moment, such as like just swallow it or have a drink or, or turn it into an ad. Well, right. But I mean, in terms of what he gives back to the other person, like when he, when he, he when he re-externalizes that as advice, it's always advice the way the fictitious creation of Don Draper is expected in this society to deal with it, right. which is essentially to push it down within yourself or to externalize it through alcohol mm-hmm. or something like that. And he even tries to do that again in this episode. He essentially recapitulates the advice that he gave to Peggy like years ago about her her pregnancy to um, Stephanie. Stephanie, yeah, you know, and it 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 fizzles completely. Right. Like yeah. it is it is not well, appropriate because oftentimes that advice that he's <clears throat> giving is just things he wants to hear himself say and like wants to have said. But not doesn't. well, and because those are the things that have that again on the surface like have worked for him, mm-hmm. you know. And it's all like this sort of like Don centric, like seven seasons of that, and to see him feel everything and take it in, emotionally express it without like holding back, and then as opposed <clears throat> to um, continuing that cycle of like Don feedback loop get up and actually touch and hug another person, which is what that man needed mm-hmm. and give to him something yeah. was like, that's when I realized like, Oh, this is mm-hmm. actually like, that wasn't Don triangulating emotion. That was Don like actually letting himself was actually letting being, it wash yeah. over him yeah. in, a, in a unguarded way, which is so rare for him and externalizing his empathy in an honest, in a, in a, in a way that another person can digest it honestly right. in a very unselfish way. Yes. Even if he did serve to get something out of it, which is a bit of like emotional redemption and peace, like I don't think that's but what not Don due was to a calculation. Right, exactly right. Yeah, no, it happened just because what like, that guy said actually like I think hit him without him having to like angle his internal sort of emotion lenses to let it filter. Like it just went whoop. Right. Well I think you know? I think in that moment, like Don doesn't like Don has been so stripped down to nothing that he has no one else to impress. He has no other ego <laughs> to build that yeah. like he has yes. no other option. That's, that's other actually than, true. You know what I mean? But to then actually mm-hmm. do the thing that a human being should do. It was important probably that that was a, a random sort of person and not someone in his personal life or in his work because whenever he is in, you know, generally speaking, when he sort of dispenses the kind of advice we were talking about, it's with someone in his sort of professional hierarchy 
with whom he has to maintain like a particular kind of power dynamic or um, expectation or like pr- presentation of value or someone in his perf- personal life where he also generally is exerting some kind of some kind of power or um, like a uh, pre- version of himself seeking to impress. Um, that means nothing in this circumstance. Like he's finally gotten himself to a point where that stuff is irrelevant in this. I saw some, some really shitty takes on that scene that were just about the fact that Don was like the, the, the dressing down that Don got about being an attractive man and how this man, like, did you read that article? Man, there was, there was something where someone was just like, Don finally sees that you can, you know, like the, the privileges that he's had. And it made me like, I read a couple things that were entirely just about this being the breaking down of Don like as an attractive man who can skate over things. And that really bummed me out that people yeah, just, I don't know if that that's he, the only take. From yeah. That that's definitely not the only take. I mean, I think that's a take for us as an audience kind of, but I don't think it's the primary, it's not the, like, it's not the thrust of that scene. The thrust of the scene is like Don as a human being sort of yeah. reduced to his emotional core. I mean, I do think that there are, sh- I think there's a, there is a reason that the guy who was chosen to deliver that is kind of a schlubby looking guy that we can contrast with Don's, you know, like yeah, I, th- but I think that was more showing just this guy has a completely different existence than Don and his strengths or weaknesses, whatever they are, are obviously on the surface different than Don's, but he can end up in an emotional state that is very, very, very similar to the place that Don is in. Like those two guys are in the same room and have yeah, very like course. the same two sides of the same coin as far as like the problems that they're facing in life. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not yeah. just about you're attractive or no, you not. have the struggles of being an attractive man or whatever. No, you know? it's, not, it's not just about that. But I but I do think that this show has often dealt with the the difference between kind of like the facade people put on and the actual road that they have to walk. Like, the you know, I, I think the show is very humane in that it suggests that, um, you know, in this scene and, and in just a lot of other um uh, material shows put forward. It, 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 it is very humane in that it suggests that people do share, people do share a lot internally and sort of have this underlying core with which they can connect if they actually let each other do so. But I think the show also does, does traffic a lot. Maybe, maybe not even like as much as it could given the era in the differences in people's roads in getting to that point. Yep. And I think, you know, like the, 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 in what you're born with and what you're expect and what society expects of you. And I do think that there, I do think the scene like w- reminds us of that, but yeah, it's not, it's not the yeah, totality I, of what the scenes. About also just sure. that guy, I think expressed the feeling of going through your life and having a complicated life full of things in it, but still feeling like you don't exist in the world in a way that Don probably could never actually articulate in a room. So Don hearing that yeah. was also probably a huge moment for him because that's mm-hmm. obviously what he's been, yeah, well, he, art- he articulates like it to Peggy. <laughs> says, yeah, yeah. He stole a man's name and made nothing of it. Yeah. Gosh, that I was gonna I was gonna ask you guys if there was like other landmark moments of the episode you guys wanted to talk about because there we've kind of skated over everybody who isn't uh, Don. Um, I guess we talked a bit about. We have Betty. to talk about Joan also. Yeah, because, of course, man, exactly yeah. right. But um, and Peggy. I mean, we've yeah. talked about Peggy, but we need to talk about Joan. Um, man, speaking when of Peggy speaking, says to him, okay, you're Peggy, yeah. like. What did you ever do that was so bad? Mm-hmm. That was so good. That was such an amazing <laughs> that entire scene that you you said the end of where he's like, "I stole a man's name. I did this, right. I did that." Like, oh, God, I have nothing other to say other than that noise, which yeah. is just like, oh, God, another scene where I was just jaw on the floor watching mm-hmm. these characters mm-hmm. be. Well, she did. Like, one of the things that was so great about her performance in that scene is that she's basic. I, I got the sense that she was essentially going through just like 
a list of ways to react. Not a li- that makes it sound right. cynical, but like she's she's like trying different approaches. Because Don seems none of them are- suicidal, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, yeah. But, like, it also seems like a Don technique that she's using in a certain way, though. I think of just like just trying to match. The- just ask, the, like, yeah, sort of turn the wheel of yeah. what angle you're trying to see the thing through until you can like get, get it in. Until you get the yeah. in, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. it's like. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So uh, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say. If speaking of Peggy, since we've already talked about the whole Peggy uh, Stan thing. Um, I just – it's very important to point out that Peggy has covered up the Japanese porn octopus with like Frankensteins and cats and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Someone also pointed out that – There is the, the, some the, the, choice the, like, 70s Halloween decor, yeah. Oh, yeah. by the way. So, someone else did also point out that like the hot shit outfit that she wore to work that day is already just like has been taken off in the office and hung up on the wall of her office. <laughs> so she apparently didn't even wear that home, I guess. <laughs> really funny. Because she's just dressing like Peggy and looking like Peggy right. again at this point. Mm-hmm. She's just like, oh man, I don't know. I like that. Like, I don't feel like she totally like left that. No, because when we're introduced to Peggy, it's, the, it's her just it's her <laughs> yeah, power trying play. to make a power play right. to get that account right. Course, Where she's like, yeah. maybe we should talk to that guy. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. You know. Um, so actually, do you want to go from that to to Jones? To Jones. Since, yeah, since that crosses over. Yeah. What did you? I mean, I was actually really glad that Peggy didn't go with Joan and not because that, that wasn't, wouldn't have been awesome. Like that would have been super just like badass and cool. Yeah. Molly Lambert's article is sh- like lamenting that. Oh, okay. But, oh, what like, a, what but, a, what a thing to not lament in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, like the show. Well, because, so I don't know what Jake, I don't know what your take well, on it, but just real quickly. Just okay. To, like the show has trafficked so much in kind of like the heist and the, the, the departure and the sort of like team up and, and, and get out um, that I, I feel like, and and in fact, we already get that from from um, in a way from Pete this episode that I feel like to tack on one more of those would have just been a little much. And I was just glad to, to, to see it against type a bit. I think the thing that I liked oh, – the, the reason that I thought it was cool that Peggy didn't stay is because I think it is more honest to Peggy's character that she yeah, and Stan are going to make it at McCann. I also just thought as far as Jones' arc that Jones like two names make a company. Oh, you saw this oh, yeah. day, yeah. Yeah. She and, calling it Holloway Harris. And then at the end when Wait, she says – you see? At, Oh. oh, just at the end, I couldn't, I, I couldn't remember because she answers the phone or she has a woman answer the phone and says Holloway Harris. Right. And, and I was Holloway like, Holloway was her first name. And yeah, Holloway right. Harris is just Joan and Joan. Yeah. yeah it took, it took, that took me a second, but yeah, once I, yeah, like whatever that's yeah. so she's like the other name, the company is just for you, Peggy. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, and your assumption is, or I'm not going to start the company. No, she just starts the company and names it after her own hyphenated name. Like, yeah. oh yeah. So fantastic. Like, yep. like that's such a better that's such a better end of that whole arc than Joan and Peggy going into business together. Although that's I, yeah. still cool. It's like still that cool. would no, have been I, cool. I, I totally agree. It's really Joan. I mean, and that's obviously mirrored in the fact that Joan, what's the guy's name? Um, Richard. Richard, you know, yeah. he, he takes, I mean, this is Joan essentially like just realizing I, I mean, not that she didn't already realize this essentially, but like she really has, has come to the conclusion of like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna achieve the life I want, I just have to go for it. I just have to do it. Like I'm not I you know, there is no like waiting for someone else. There's no like figuring out like the balance. It's just I am going to do this. It's, period. It's so it's funny listen if you listen back to previous episodes where we were sort of making peace with Joan's lot in life the way that she was. We're like, man, I mean it sucks that she's going out this way, but at least like she's got someone who she likes living her life with, at least she's got the money. And I'm glad that both Mad Men and Joan did not settle for that piece that even we had made with her storyline a couple <laughs> yeah, episodes ago. We're like, no, that's a very, no, yeah, that's yeah, a very good shit. point. Sorry. 
Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. Start my own company. I'm a producer now. Bye. Yeah, like yeah. I'm gonna you, do one bump of coke in the Florida Keys. Yeah. I'm getting down to business. <laughs> I know. It's like I thought you'd be on a beach. I went to the beach. Like, yeah, I was fine. <laughs> did it already. Whoa. Yeah. Also, um, in Joan's storyline, I liked that it was all kicked off by Joan and Cosgrove having a meeting. Like the 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 ex Sterling Cooper Draper yeah. Price like connections thing. As a like, it, it felt. That felt genuine and yeah, really good. Real. Of just like, like oh, business. you guys, you guys work together. You, he's like kept a Rolodex, right? Like, yes, obviously, all these connections that you've made, despite yeah. the fact that you're not, your family is not literally a corporate family anymore. The bonds might actually be stronger now that you're all living your own lives and well, just keeping in touch with each other. Works it sure. is how life works, yeah, and it was, the, but just the way that scene played was so good. Like it was just like. Because when, when you see when you catch up with the person after not seeing them for months, there's like an intensity and a sort of like. And I think the playing field levels because the thing that you have in common now yes. is you both got out and you're both doing your own thing, at your own company, and like it's just weird people. Joan, who yeah, Joan and Peggy's together. relationship was way stronger for it. Joan and Ken Cosgrove's relationship was way stronger for it. And it's just like we all actually are Pete people and who Peggy, which Pete, I want to talk about. Yeah, it's just like they all are now in a place where it's like you all had the strength to move on and do your own thing, right. and we all now see each other on that level instead mm-hmm. of on whatever the and like. I know that is what happens in real life, but Mad Men has never really gotten into it because the main no, cast has never been able to, yes. to get out. And Which just seeing... I, I saw an interview, I, I, one of the interviews that I was talking about that I, that I heard with Matt Weiner, he was talking about how, um, you know, they really try in Mad Men to kind of capture the, the messiness of life and so on. And I think that they largely succeed, but he acknowledged one of the ways in which they sort of fail or maybe they just didn't oh, yeah, attempt yeah, yeah. was the unrealistic thing of these people all still somehow keep working together which is not you know right that's not it's unlikely after this many but kind of the way the way that they sort of sp- the way they on. spin off all the different trajectories right in this episode felt really honest to if this is falling apart yeah, this is in, re- in reality how it would work because in tv shows usually it feels like everyone either stays together or the end of it is all the different people ride off somehow into all of their own different sunsets and are never going to see each other again. Right. Whereas well, there's this only is like, like one shot in the whole episode that's actually in McCann that isn't in Peggy's office, you know? Yeah. And it's like, isn't there that shot? Well, with, she's in the conference room. Is that what you mean? Harry, no, there's a shot. With oh, that's in, that's in Peggy's office, isn't it? Harry's in Peggy, Peggy's oh, office. Oh, that's all in their office. But, yeah, but, so it's like but, all basically. Well, Peggy's office. in a conference room. The only other one was Peggy, yeah. and, Peggy and Stan in the conference yeah, room. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so I want to talk about uh, Peggy and Pete because I think that that, the conversation that that was really good. Yeah, it was really good. The conversation that that uh, that Pete and Peggy have together, I think, is one of not the sole, but one of the reasons um, Peggy turned down Joan's offer. Um, I think there was something really great about the way Pete. Um, you know, <laughs> it's definitely not the only reason because no, Stan say, straight uh, up says, "Don't do it," I and know. I think her listening to Stan is one of the motivators uh, to yes, that. Obvi- of course. But I think that there was something that it's, it's probably why she didn't just jump ship immediately. There was something that I think was was important about, uh, and and I think very nice in Pete's character about the combination of painting this very bleak picture of like by 1980 you're going to be a creative director. She's like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god uh, like combined with the like a realization of like, but that's like kind of what you actually wanted, you know? I mean, it's not like yeah, that's a, that's a long road, but like that's what this job is. You know, you work your way up, you know, and, and um, it's and also I, exactly the plan that she outlined to Dawn. She said in five yes, years, but yeah, whatever. Well, right. But ex- exactly. But, it, but I think the state, when you say like in five years, I think that's different from saying in 1980, yes. which is one 10 years, but also when you put a year on it, it, right, it, like, it seems oof. like the future. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, the thing I, the reason I like that so much um, with respect to Pete is that Pete's character has gone through, I think, 
a pretty interesting arc from being someone who was very bitter about the way that he was treated and the way that people saw him. Uh, I mean, I, I say I say bitter instead of frustrated because I don't think that he because he's a very privileged person right. who has no, no particular. Is, like, I think it's an accurate. You know, he's adjective. not entitled to anything that beyond what he already has, which is a lot. Um, so, uh, but he was very embittered about this that he looks at someone like Don Draper and doesn't understand why he, uh, Pete Campbell, isn't treated with the same kind of deference and admiration, and he's sort of transitioned into somebody who. This is what I was saying a couple episodes ago about him um, sort of growing into his his um, privilege-laden kind of patrician role with some amount of grace. And I think this is an example of that. You know, he's always going to be the, the person who who is who has more than other people like do. He flew away on a Learjet. Yeah, exactly. With <laughs> like, his, like, Jackie O wife, basically, right. like, stepping yeah. out of a limousine into a Learjet. Like, there's no world in which Pete Campbell is ever down on his luck in any real way. Right. Um, but at least he can, you know, as I said before, at least he can carry it well. And it was nice seeing him come to terms with, you know, telling telling Peggy, someday people are going to brag about having worked with you. And she says... I forget what she says, but he. It's like no one ever said that about. No yeah, one's going to say that about me. It's like no one's ever. No one's ever. Oh, and no, he says no one has ever said no that. No one about has me. ever said that about him. And there was something nice about his acceptance of that, and no longer being the sort of brat, you know. And and well, he's um, much more self-aware. He it, makes that exactly. joke about punching people as well. I don't know if it was in this well, episode the, or last episode. The, he makes a joke of just don't punch anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The irony is that he's always been self-aware. It's just that his reaction to that self-awareness in the past was being a baby about yeah, it, being a and his his yeah. reaction now is is a little more uh, uh well he's also realized he's gonna be the guy who gets out of a limousine and into a exactly. Learjet. so <laughs> well, all like, that, that whole that whole group of guys right like um pete harry crane ken cosgrove i guess this is really the only three we ever see now but they were like sort of like like the brat pack of right. sterling yeah. cooper uh-huh. in season one have all grown into the men they were going they were sort of a homogenous group right pete was it's a little true. bit of an outlier yes. that he was sort of like this the snaky one right but like they were this like pod of fresh faced boys, and even like you know you, you meet them as a group of boys who all right. are going yeah. to um, mm-hmm. Harry Crane, very like young or looking Kinsey or somebody's yeah. mm-hmm. uh, bachelor party, um, and they're a group. And now to see the three sort of sprout it was off Pete's bachelor party, yes, it was Pete's bachelor party. You're totally right to see them; those three sprout off and become three very different, weird men. <laughs> but very they're defined. all so like uh, yeah. Pete's probably the more like the most. The less weird of them. Well, he's become the less weird. Right. He but, started I mean, as maybe the most weird. Who knows what Harry Crane's, like, like self-actualization path is. And then you look at Cosgrove, and Cosgrove is such a weirdo. Just the way he speaks. It's like, but he's how's always, your son? Kind of strange. Kind, kind of, of odd, kind actually. Of odd, you know. I think there's something wrong with him. Yeah, I know. She, I love and that. he doesn't laugh. He doesn't break character. And, and Jones is like, what? Yeah. And the scene ends. Yep. yep. But, but he's... Yeah. Uh, he's Ken Cosgrove has always had that kind of lackadaisical attitude, but you, you're right that all these characters have grown into the seed, the like little subtle seeds right. of their personalities, which obviously climaxes with Harry. You know, the the most magnificent example of which is Harry Crane's final scene on this entire show of grabbing the box of cookies and storming out because he doesn't get to go to lunch with Peggy. Yeah, we should all go to lunch together. It's like we never ever went to lunch. Yeah, what are we, ever. the Three Musketeers? We're we going to start now. <laughs> yeah, it eats his cookies and leaves. Yep. Just want to. <laughs> Sad guy. Which, by the way, did you see um, Rich Summer, the the actor who portrays Harry Crane? Did you see his tweet that those cookies were baked by his actual real life wife, 
which she baked every year for the writing staff. Yeah. The actual yeah, I did cookies. See that. I saw that. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that great? I did see that. That's yeah. really good. One other thing that's a sort of like, you have to go back and look at this, Jake, because this is like, I instantly thought of you in terms of set dressing. The scene where Joan is saying goodbye to Richard and she has the phone sort of like against her chest mm-hmm. and they're having that conversation. Yeah. Over her, like her would be her left shoulder mm-hmm. on the fridge is a Halloween or- decoration that is the sassiest cat you've ever seen in your <laughs> fucking life. And like, I could, the scene's really serious, but there's this cat that's just sort of like, like right over her <laughs> shoulder and I just kept staring at it. And I don't, I can't remember what the heck she said to Richard before he left. It was just a sassy cat. That That's, scene yeah. was was sort of distressing and made me sad for joan but it was also such a relief because there's been such a hostile edge secretly to that entire relationship that right. everyone including joan including us as the audience had been sort of just like uh it's probably fine having the the pressure come off and realizing just like oh that was just actually terrible was, right was so good so uh, you know in that in that regard maybe I, i'll be glad to see that sassy cat because sassy cat mm-hmm do we want to do a couple of reader mail or do well, we want to, it was a long I, episode. Do you, well, do you guys want to talk about, is there anything else to say about Roger or we, the week? I don't know. <laughs> it's good. Whatever. Yeah. Um, Orders a lobster and champagne in French. For my mother. For his mother. That was so good. They, yeah. they flirt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, like, he Roger's only had two scenes, Roger, but they were right? good. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, yeah. The whatever. other thing I want to mention is, um, this is a very minor thing, but since we didn't talk about it, uh, the... We didn't talk about Don driving cars in the salt flats. That's anyway, true. whatever. We didn't talk about that. Oh, I did like that a lot. Yeah, that was fun. Um, uh, one thing that is was was a really nice kind of little subtle thing. Um, if you think back to uh, Freddie Rumson delivering these sort of like Don supplied, we oh did we you see this on the Vulture Accutron? Did you see this ad? I think I know what you're about to talk about. Yeah, he yeah. when he's giving this whole uh, he's painting this whole picture of Accutron watches. And, you know, it's like, it's a conversation piece. Um, he, when was that? Uh, it was episode it was one season of season one seven. Of season seven. Yes. Okay. Uh, he does the om Like, he completely seeds yeah, that. We hear the, the fir- ticking of the watch. Om Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that, yeah, comes back, obviously, at the very end of the episode. Yeah, it's a and that's just a nice little... I actually, the reason, I actually saw that from um, Rich Summers' oh, yeah, Twitter account Summer. again. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is where I saw that. Uh, so that, that was pretty good. I probably wouldn't have remembered that myself. Yeah, it was amazing. And I rewatched the, you know, his delivery. The Accutron and, thing know, was, yeah. Do you think Don, sorry, I, I realized all the early Don stuff we just didn't talk about. Like when he goes back and visits that woman whose name I keep forgetting. Stephanie? Who, yeah, who calls him dick all the time and he's t- test, test driving Anna, that car. Anna Draper's niece. Anna Draper's niece. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that he came back there with some weird brain-addled version of giving that ring to her for any reason other than, like, why did he... Why did he keep that with his cash when and his ultimate destination seemed to also end up at her house? Do you think there was anything in his brain about that at all besides just I'm going to give you your ring back? I think there was definitely like you're the last woman yeah, I have like, maybe because it feels like there is that yeah. tiny glimmer like it's it's not a thing. Don doesn't have a healthy relationship with any woman. No. <laughs> no. So, so that's like, what I that's can't what, imagine this I think that it, 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 it was just can I just propose to her and be Dick Whitman? Like that feels like that existed for half a Ugh. second. And then she was like, sleep on the couch. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I mean, don't regardless know. of what his intentions were, she definitely preemptively shut anything down. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And also just, we didn't talk about Don test driving a car on the salt flats, but that was a, the most hilarious, best and way to open that. Yeah. If you're opening the last episode of Mad Men, it's just, 
<laughs> Don Draper just in a silver sports car blazing in the middle of nowhere. Anyway. My end of Mad Men theory is that he actually died in a car fire on the Bonneville Salt Flats, and the rest of the episode was a dream. <laughs> We're all living in Don Draper's dream then because we have that Coca-Cola ad that didn't exist uh, until a year after he was in that car accident. That's true. So that's what I think. So the, you're saying that the reality reality that we live in is Don Draper's dream. More um, or less. <laughs> I would say that we're all living in Don Draper's dream, metaphorically or or actually. It doesn't matter. Your interpretation is up to you. Uh, so, okay, this is this is a really dumb thing. but um, <sighs> Can't wait. When I, so when I, I watch you know, the show live on AMC – and at you know exactly seven o'clock when it when it came on, the thing that came on was a um, uh, this like times of your life song, which I guess is by Paul Enka. That was a that ended up being used as as an advertising jingle in the seventies, juxtaposed against just scenes from throughout Mad Men, and there was no like indication of what i was watching so and you it, don't know if this is like directorial cho- or yeah, like the choice of the of that kind of song was very Mad Men-esque, right but it was also very maudlin and i was like oh my god what if this is just a clip show <laughs> what if the last episode of Mad Men is just a weird like advertising jingle infused what if it's an extended uh, like yes i don't know like it's just a, <laughs> an extended uh, next time on Mad yeah. Men. I was I was because so, it went on for a while, and I'm like, what is it? Like they didn't have the, anything superimposed in the corner saying like AMC. You're like coming soon, like ten seconds left. I couldn't they handle had a, that. They had a big countdown that was like, I forget what aired before this, but there was a big like thirty second countdown that was like n- n- final episode of Mad Men in like ten, nine, eight, seven, like three, two, one. Ba-da-ba. And then it just does this thing, and I'm like, what is happening? It was crazy. As, as Matthew Weiner just floats away on an umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> Laughing to himself. That, that was a moment. So, like, everything about the way this show airs on television is, like, amazingly bizarre. From the, yep. from the next time on Mad Men, from the previously on Mad Men, from these weird promos they do. Like, everything, everything about watching this show – this show is so – thematically self-contained and like aesthetically self-contained and it like wants to be watched in a bubble like you don't want anything from the world to just like right. punctuate this show it is designed as a complete like solid piece every episode right, but, but, but when you, if you get on one TV, if you get one frame outside of that bubble it's just like garbage trucks dumping right. everything they yeah. possibly can it's to try and permeate the wall yeah, yeah. The bones commercial up against a, yeah yep. it's crazy well, well, commercial but it's not against. just that it's like it's against Mad that, Man's own Mad Man's yeah, own marketing for itself. AM, it's all the weird stuff the that, that AMC like <laughs> appends to it. Right. That's still like Mad Man branded. It's like you're watching Mad Man for seven minutes and then it, there's a black frame and then a, a smarmy just network idiot goes like, hey, you know you're watching Mad Men, right? You like Mad Men? Yeah. You're like, Everyone you're loves Mad right Men. Now, this is a here's, what, here's what you feel about Mad Men. Like, ah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. The, the way that it's treated <laughs> I by think, AMC, at least in these interstitials and so on, is as though it's like an Avengers, a new Avengers right, movie. But, okay, it's like so all your tie-ins. Like, the, 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 sneak the, peek at the new one. Like, it's all that kind of stuff. It's probably... So... Does that mean that, like, 20 years removed from Mad Men, there's going to be the, let's re- let's do a different reading of Mad Men where we splice all of that shit back into the Mad Men experience? Because right now we're like, Mad Men is best observed, hermetically sealed. Nyeh. I've never seen it that way because I only just watch it on Amazon. I know. I only ever watch the, like, the, the pay to not watch on TV yeah. release of it. But, right. um, but 
uh, anyway, we should do some reader mail and then we should close it out. Or we should like, what's your, what's your favorite reader mail? What's the end of the end of the end of Mad Men, Chris? Woof. Um, Matt Weiner writes, Hey guys, <laughs> you're hate, stupid. Hate the podcast. You're ruining my show. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Just watch it and be done with it. Um, here, okay. Well, I, I don't know if this is like the reader mail to end all reader mail, but it's, but it's interesting. Um, John Loniker <laughs> writes, Scoring and character themes. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Uh, during the show, you've discussed the songs that play over the end credits and their relevance to an episode, but I wanted to take a moment to appreciate how David Carbonara's scoring has been used to support character themes. In the middle of the first season, we are introduced to the idea of Peggy as a creative force during the Belle Jolie lipstick brainstorming session. While all the other secretaries are busy applying lipstick, Peggy is sitting and observing the scene. There's a brilliant shot shifting from one side of Peggy's face full frame behind her head into the other side. The shot is cued to a specific section of David, Dave, uh, David Carbonara's track, Lipstick. The song plays throughout all the scene, but that one cue is all Peggy. I felt like it was a super stylish, albeit ham-fisted way of asking us to shift, shift our perception of her. In the final season during the scene where Peggy walks into McCann Erickson with her cigarette and Octopus pleasuring a woman painting, bang, we hear the exact same music cue as the shot shifts to slow motion. We get to have a new Peggy and be just as excited for her, for her trajectory as we were during that first season. It's touches like this that make Mad Men feel so thoughtful and complete, and I was so excited when I noticed this example that I had to share. Thanks for a top-notch podcast. Thanks, John. That's yeah. awesome. That is one of those things that you only get when you have the same person writing your music for the entire run of it and having a supervisor, mm-hmm. supervising composer like that. Because that person, the same way that like Sean, you do, you write stuff. You're a you're a writer by trade, and I'm always surprised when someone's like, "Oh, in that one scene when someone said this," and you're like, "Actually, I know because I wrote it that they said exactly this, this, and this." Even if it's like two years out from that event mm-hmm. happening, mm-hmm. you know that this the guy who who scores Mad Men. It's his job to do that, and he's the exact person who, regardless of whether an editor happens to remember it or a writer happens to remember it, will be like, I wrote this piece, or we used this piece when this scene happened with Peggy, and I think it would be a great thing to put in right here. And you like, you like, that institutionalized knowledge does not exist if you don't have a person like that in that role for the whole time. The same way as if you lose a lead writer, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a couple more emails. Is that okay. okay. So Ben, no. Skip- <laughs> ben Skipper writes, Hi, Thumbs. Uh, lots of people online have been talking about the ending as if it is binary. Either Don, Don went on to channel all he had experienced into his greatest work, not changing at all, or the ending isn't literal and the ad was used to bring all facets of his character together and represent the piece he has found. I prefer the idea that the reality is a mixture of both. That Don has found an inner piece of some kind. How long it lasts is another matter. I doubt he's a totally changed man. And it's that piece that leads him to the idea. He goes back to his life as an ad man and creates that famous ad. But there's a part of him that actually believes the hopeful, optimistic tone of it as well. Also, did anyone else uh, see Pete getting on that plane during the final montage and get the feeling the plane might crash like his father's did? <laughs> maybe there's something in that. Or maybe it's just that I want Pete to die in a plane crash just as much as I did during the show's first few seasons. Thanks for doing these episodes. I hope you do something similar with another show when the time is right. Um, Dinosaurs Rewatch Podcast. <laughs> and then uh, James Lawler writes, Hello. Uh, to jump off from Sean's point about Don's empathetic acuity that I particularly like, Last week, I wondered whether Don's trip to track down Diane in Wisconsin was at least part, partly related to his overwhelming empathy towards a mother who abandoned her child as his mother abandoned him dur- through death. Similar to his help of the convoy from last week's episode, Don seems to attempt to repair the broken elements of his past through the lives of others. Um, the theme I struggle with most, which I'm not even sure how much of a focal one it is for the creators, is beauty. That is to say, the show makes me question my own natural feeling towards it. I don't watch the show for the lifestyle porn gratification. And I even generally dislike Don as a person, but I do wonder how my feelings about the show would change were his beauty and the beauty of his partners removed. I don't know the answer. Maybe that's shameful, but I do love the show for making me question it so inwardly. Thanks for the show, James. That's a very good email, James. Yeah, that is a good email. 
Hi, James. Uh, I did think about the jet crash thing with Pete for some reason. Really? Also, oh, yeah. <laughs> the plane's going down. Don't get on but the plane. But then, the, then immediately I thought, oh, maybe it's because I'm conflating Concord jets with Lear jets, and the Concords were all the ones that were grounded because they kept crashing. That whole fleet is gone of the sort of like super fast executive jet line from the 70s and 80s. Anyway. Well, that was the Concord flew from New York to Paris in three hours. Yeah. Yeah. But then they all started falling apart and they grounded the whole fleet and they don't fly those planes anymore. Anyway, um, sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, the, uh, after one of them killed Pete Campbell, <laughs> God, Pete Campbell died on the Concord. That'd be perfect. Yeah. If that was the, the slash fic that we write to, to really quickly, um, Pete Campbell died on oceanic flight 815. <laughs> cool. Oh my God. Um, to, to really quickly address the, beauty read my thing, Tumblr. There was, I, I think that the, that's a really good point to bring up. And actually that ties into what I was saying uh, a little bit ago about Freddie Rumson delivering the Accutron ad, which is that I rewatched it and like, as gross as this is to say, when I was, you know, watching Freddie, this just kind of like middle-aged sort of doe-faced guy, read this directly into the camera the same way Don might in an earlier season when he was still kind of doing that stuff. Um, it just, there's, you know, watching this like beautiful man do it really is, it does punch you harder than mm-hmm. watching the sort of more normal looking guy do it. And that's a gross, yeah. it's a gross thing, but it's like. The show clearly traffics in that very self-consciously. I was going to say, um, as opposed to like the level of pleasure that I receive while watching it, when Don, when like I'll say, beautiful person versus not as beautiful, not beautiful person. When the beautiful person is doing it, I am sucked in, and I don't um, find myself thinking, "Why is this happening?" It's like, "Oh, of course, this beautiful person is talking right. to me right in the eyes." Yeah. But when Freddie Rumson is staring into the camera, mm-hmm. doing the exact same thing, the I'm artifice like, is more. Yeah, I'm like, is this a dream? This right. is weird. Why exactly. is this guy looking at me? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. well, where does he get off? Why does right. he have the confidence to do this? Exactly. That's, that's also not to yeah. say that Freddie wouldn't be capable of having that same effect, but you just get less out of the box if you're Freddie. I think, like, because mm-hmm. I mean, like, I mean, I, I guess the argument is not that Freddie Rumson couldn't be persuasive and poignant. It's that the vision like the physical beauty of these people yeah carries immense like subtextual weight yeah yeah it's true it's a true it's i mean and, and like you know like the like the the uh guy in the email wrote like it's it's a weird thing to confront <laughs> it's you know it's it's good to be it's good to make yourself aware of those reactions mm-hmm. um yeah 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 i would say like just to wrap it all up like in terms of television i've watched or like any media that i've consumed Mad Men's up there with just like a few books and maybe a couple movies that have like really probably made me consider being alive and being a certain like a specific person much more than anything else and my life is probably better for having watched this show yeah even i mean not to say that it's like changed my life or anything it's like a very small percentage but like it is definitely been a very valuable part of my media diet over the past eight years i'm so happy that it existed yeah i agree yeah and and i think um you know in a in a sort of less personal sense i i have been so grateful to this show for demonstrating the the sort of ability to have a successful and well-made and well-regarded show on television that deals with real life in a way that is essentially for the most part, not sensationalized because even, I think even the great kind of prestige dramas that, that, that we are sort of living through now and have been for, you know, since the Sopranos essentially 
are are really like it, for the most part tend to be really heightened and really like like larger than life and madman is definitely larger than life but it's larger than than life about very human scale things and i and i i really i appreciate that so much and the the level of restraint that this show has somehow like exhibited for seven seasons is is pretty remarkable and it's a great i think just a a, a great picture of how you can create um like popular entertainment um in a really really mature adult way and i love that I probably have closing thoughts on Mad Men. <laughs> thanks, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jake. So yeah, if you thanks for listening to this podcast series. Um, it's pretty cool that you did that. Yep. Uh, it'll I live, agree. It is cool. It, it'll live on iTunes and our website and SoundCloud and where, wherever forever. So uh, if you have a friend who is getting into Mad Men now, after all the hype, it's feel free to share this with them um, as they get closer to the uh, last seven episodes. When you hear they're on their last day of binge watching, which is probably. <laughs> When yeah. they'll burn through seven whole episodes in one sitting at this point. Yeah. But uh, we do, um, we said before, we do like a series of, we do a video game podcast and uh, the Idle Thumbs Network hosts a bevy of sort of like, uh, I don't know, podcasts. hobby interest yeah. podcasts from games to uh, television, et cetera, et cetera. So if you like this, maybe check out anything else we have on offer. And if you uh, want to stay in touch with us, follow us on uh, Twitter at, at Idle Thumbs, uh, and our website is idlethumbs.net. Mm-hmm. And Jake and I do have been doing a uh, Twin Peaks rewatch podcast that we've um, we're about to conclude actually this week with the the our podcast about the final episode of that show. Coincidentally, um, we'll be still still be talking about the movie Fire Walk with Me, and we're, our plan is hopefully when that show returns next year on Showtime to uh do what we did with madman and follow it along week by week um i should do that with you guys having never seen twin peaks i'll like, <laughs> I, be yeah, like I quiet side i guarantee you'd be miserable well some yeah. people are gonna have to, are gonna discover twin peaks through the new show i could bring a different light we'll see we'll see we'll see <laughs> and one last thing this is something we never do on any podcasts but um the three of us are making a video game called firewatch and it actually stars one of the uh characters from Mad Men, rich summer who plays harry crane so he's the voice of the protagonist in that game uh and you can learn about that at firewatchgame.com if you are so inclined yep yeah well thanks for thanks for listening along we really appreciate it you can keep up with you know other podcast work that we do at idlethumbs.net and i I definitely personally hope that uh we or some subset of us continues to um do podcasts like this when we find the time and when there when there are shows that we think are are you know interesting content for that so um yeah if you if you follow our website at idlethumbs.net, you will be kept abreast with any such developments. And thank you so much again for listening. Bye.